Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we have a great guest. We are joined by Steve Pretrick. He's a veteran of multiple successful fintech startups and a current partner at World Innovation Lab, a US and Japan-based venture capital firm with capital from governments and corporations in Japan and throughout Asia. Steve has particular expertise in the insure tech space, having co-founded Metromile, an early innovator in insure tech. Steve is also an MBA graduate from our very own Wharton School, where he graduated as a Palmer Scholar, our top distinction. He also holds bachelor degrees in mechanical engineering and economics from Stanford University. And now join me in a fun interview with Steve Pretre. Steve, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you. You're not only a great guest, but also an alum. So we love having Wharton alums on the show. Can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So obviously, so today, working on the venture capital side, but I spent most of my career on the operating side. And you know, a lot of different cases of working in insure tech type of companies, but long before people actually, you know, even thought about the term of insure tech. So going back very early days and even thinking I'm going to date myself into the early 90s, worked at a company that a lot of us call the first insure tech. It was a company called RMS that at the time was very unique in building, using new data sources and building models to basically help insurance companies manage risk that couldn't be modeled with actuarial means. And so this is things like earthquakes and hurricanes and things that had very high impact, but very low frequency. And so there just wasn't data to be able to model it. And so through that, I learned a lot about how the insurance ecosystem works in terms of quantifying risk, managing it, transferring it across the ecosystem that helped me as I moved throughout my career. And then, you know, worked at a couple other companies like from Kadashurian that a lot of people haven't heard of, but it's a, if people look it up, Stanford does a lot of case studies on it. It was a very rapid growth insurance company selling basically cell phone insurance through the wireless carriers back in the 90s and 2000s and kind of rode that wave and learned through that a lot about how to think about selling product like insurance through channels and the challenges and opportunities associated with that. And then took some of those experiences. And again, before people were talking about insure tech, Founded a company called Metro Mile, set that up, started getting it running, took it through its kind of the early growth phase. And there did a lot of the work that other companies have followed in terms of figuring out how to do the MGA structure that you know, other companies like you know, Hippo and Ladder and a lot of the companies that have come along behind us use the same structure in order to figure out how to bring a regulated product to market what are the structures you do to, to set that up, have the capitalization, have the essentially the paper to write that type of product on that you could bring to market in a direct-to-consumer type of model. And then from there, ended up using a lot of the experience, like we said, to move over to the venture capital side and now focusing on investing across both insure tech as well as broader fintech space, primarily at the growth stage is, is where we, we focus in the U.S. 
Great. So you've had a long career in fintech. You're definitely the right person for this show. I'm sure our listeners will love to hear more about your experience as a founder in, in MetroMile. Tell us a little bit of the company, how did the idea come about, and how did you get started? So the way that it came about, and for people who don't know MetroMile, it was, like I said, an early insure tech and focusing on essentially at the time, these new devices that you could plug into a car called an OBD device, onboard diagnostics, that were equipped with a cellular chip and GPS that once plugged into the car, you could use to track the number of miles that someone drove. And so we used that as a new data source to enable us to bring a product to market where we charge people for car insurance by the mile. And really looking at the trend that was going on with particularly younger generation people looking at moving back into urban areas, oftentimes using public transportation to get to work. And so as a result, we're driving three, 4,000 miles a year. And when we looked at the model of the way insurance was being charged, historically, the insurance had no way to track that. And so they just assumed everyone lied on the application. So mileage was something that was dampened within their pricing. And we felt that, oh, if we can actually validate how many miles someone can is driving, we can change the pricing model, fit it to the lifestyle of a particular demographic that makes up 20 or 30% of the US population um, and provide a unique product to them that meets a unmet need in the marketplace. You know, at the time, there weren't other companies trying to do, oh, we're doing a startup and bringing an insurance product to market. And because of the nature of insurance in the U.S., you basically have to have an incumbent that's willing to provide you with what they call the paper. So essentially the authority to write a insurance product and sell it to customers with the appropriate financial backing behind it. And that was something where when I was talking to all the people in the industry at the time, they're like, there's no way incumbent insurance company is going to give you the pin on a new auto insurance product and let you take this to market, don't even try and do it. And so, you know, the biggest challenges we had were obviously going and figuring out how to create this model and find people that we could work with to back us on, on doing that. It's fascinating. And it's interesting to see how the industry has evolved so much over time uh, in SureTech. And now, not only do you have startups, but you have companies like Tesla integrating this very concept yeah. that you're talking about, right? Giving you a very competitive rate using all the data that users uh, are producing within the platform. Yeah, and this is just between uh, 2011, 2012, and by 2015, the market had totally changed. I mean, there were now you know, reinsurers and others coming into the market and seeing some of the things that companies like Metro Mile or Climate Corporation or some of the early people that were pioneering this MGA structure were doing and making that capability much more available. And so the dynamic totally changed to where the thing that was the life and death for me of you know every 24 hours, 36 hours, I'm like, is my company gonna die if I can't get someone to you know, provide paper? There were these mechanisms to be able to do that. And it led to this explosion of different companies coming in and taking that model that we'd pioneered and doing a huge range of products. So you saw everything from Lemonade doing renter's insurance, Hippo doing homeowner's insurance, Pi doing workers' comp insurance, you know, just almost this explosion of you know, different types of companies coming in and adopting that model and taking it forward. And so it's been very exciting to see how things have changed. 
I kind of laughed at the founders that were doing this in 2015, 2016, saying you have life so easy compared to what it was <laughs> when we started out. But um, it's been great to see the industry really change in a way that has enabled a lot of this innovation to take place. And why did you decide to move on from Metro? I understand that you were there for uh, north of three years. So my DNA is I really like kind of the product side of things and you know, like that figuring out the model and how to make it work and you know, getting it started and getting it going. And that's the piece that I have always thrived on. And so once it's kind of you know, three, four years into it and onto now it's about kind of blocking and tackling and scaling that business. You know, I think there are other people that are better at that stage. And I, I was fairly self-aware of that. You know, I had done the similar sorts of models several times throughout my career of you know, starting something, getting it going, getting it to scale, and then turning it over to someone else to run longer term and then going on doing the next thing. And I think at that stage in my career, I was like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've built up a lot of experience. I would love to go share this with other founders. And as opposed to diving and doing the next thing for the next you know, three to five years, had an opportunity to join World Innovation Lab and really look at hey, how can I spread this and, you know, have that excitement of, oh, this new idea, this new model, let me figure out this puzzle, how do I make it work? And as opposed to being dedicated to one thing, being able to really take advantage of that passion and work with multiple companies all at the same time. And so that was what led me to make the transition. And um, World Innovation Lab is a little bit of a unique animal that kind of provided a nice draw for me where, as opposed to a lot of venture capital firms where, the sources of capital are endowments, pension funds, family offices, fairly passive capital. All of our LPs are primarily large Japanese corporates. And it's across a bunch of different sectors. You know, it's the common Sony, Nissan, Mizuho, you know, c- companies like that. But there is a strong focus of financial services and insurance companies as well. So Mizuho Bank, Daiwa Securities, Credit Cezanne on the financial services side, Tokyo Marine, which is one of the three largest PNC insurers out of Japan, Daiichi, which is one of the largest life insurers in Japan. And that gave me an opportunity to, even though I was moving to the VC side, to be able to work with those LPs on an ongoing basis to understand what are the challenges that they have internally? What are the things that they're trying to do? And then look at the startups that I'm either either meeting or we're investing in and looking at, hey, how can we pair those two together? And you know, almost from a business development or partnership type of deal, allow me to you know, kind of flex some of that operating experience that I had and still be involved from that side. But at the same time, obviously move over and, and start focusing on investing and in trying to help companies scale. That's a move that you see often, right? Mm-hmm. A founder that becomes an investor. Tell us about that transition, but also do you think that an investor can add a lot of value without that experience? Many of them can. And I obviously I work with people across a lot of different firms and you know see people who have direct operating experience and other people that maybe came up through a you know a pure you know maybe they were at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley and you know looking at things from an IPO or a public markets perspective and then bringing that over into the VC side and i think there are different skill sets and particularly looking at different stages of the company growth so a lot of times the people that 
you know, have the founder experience and the operating experience, they tend to focus a lot more on early stage, you'll see. So, you know, as you are putting together your team, figuring out your product market fit, how are you going to scale your go-to-market, a lot of those mechanical types of things, someone with operating expertise can be invaluable of lessons learned, where are the pitfalls, what can you do at that stage. Then as the company is starting to scale, a lot of times that experience of, you know, what are the metrics and the systems that you need to have in place to take a company from 10 people to 100 people and from 100 people to 1,000 people? Having people that have seen how companies do that and the systems, the processes, the metrics that you need to use and what's going to play well then once you start getting to public market, having people who've seen that and can advise companies on that transition can be very important. So again, different types of investors can help with different phases. And I think that founders who, as they're putting together what investors I'm working with, and who's going to be joining my board, thinking about what are those different skill sets and when do I want to add them to kind of the team of investors, the people I have on my board, based on the experience I need at these different phases of my growth is a really important exercise for them to go through. That makes sense. Let's go back to talking about World Innovation Lab. So you have this close relationship with the Japanese LPs, which is Mm -hmm pretty interesting and unique, at least for a VC in the US. Why fintech? Why is fintech an area of focus within all the industries? Well, within World Innovation Lab, we invest cross-sector. So one of my partners here in the US is investing in a lot of developer tools, productivity types of applications, and others focusing on enterprise SaaS. With my background, obviously, having worked in fintech and insurtech, and that's where my operating expertise is, that's where I tend to focus, both because it's my passion, it's where I have the experience, it's where I feel like I can add value to um, the entrepreneurs that I'm working with. We do have the freedom to go and kind of look wherever we want to. So a couple summers ago, for example, I spent probably six weeks doing a deep dive in quantum computing just because... You know, there was a company I was interested in, was talking to them, wanted to learn about the space and you know, had the freedom to go and, and really do that. And I think that's one of the interesting things on the VC side is you're essentially getting paid to go and be able to dive into areas that you have an intellectual curiosity and spend time doing that and build up you know, some level of expertise in those areas. And that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed in making that transition. And a lot of your firms, firms that you support are entering new markets, right? Either geographic new markets, but I assume also new customer segments. How do you help them with those kind of challenges? Right. And I can talk specifically about some of the financial services companies that we work with, the fintech types of startups. So for example, in some cases, we'll have a company that I'm working with that is working on the infrastructure side. And maybe they've built a product that they've been working with banks as a initial market segment that they're going into. And it might be providing a data feed that they're using and underwriting to help with risk selection on and pricing on lending, for example. And I can look at that and say, hey, that data feed that you are creating actually would also be very applicable on the insurance side. And here's how it would be structured and how you would look about doing that. Here's the way that underwriters at an insurance company think. So you can understand 
the new customer segment you're going after, how you need to think about the decision they're going through, what is the workflow they're working on, and oh, here are five people in that industry that I can put you in touch with that can help you learn or potentially become first customers as you're kind of creating a new use case in that market segment to figure out how to broaden your go-to-market. And so it's things like that that we can look at. Obviously, Japan is a great market to help companies enter into as well. And so oftentimes, like with one of our LPs, many of them, because they are global companies, will have an operation in the U.S. So we'll introduce them there first, start building a customer relationship, and then can use that LP as a beachhead to, hey, let's also take this and maybe be a first flagship customer in Japan. And that transition into Japan is much harder for a lot of companies than particularly a U.S.-based startup often thinks, oh, I'll start in the U.S., And then my next kind of step is Canada or the UK or Australia, and then maybe maybe broader Europe from that. And Japan is oftentimes much farther down on their list, but it is still third largest individual economy in the world. And from an IT spend perspective, you know, remaining right at the top of the list of markets to be entering into. And if you look at companies like, you know, Oracle or Salesforce, Japan is a major market for them, but it's a very hard market to get into. And so a lot of times, you know, we have a team in Japan, so we we invest directly in Japan as well and have an investment team over there, but can help them with, you know, what are the first four customers? We'll get you introduced to them. We can help you find your initial country manager in Japan. We can help provide you with office space in our facility there as you're starting to get scaled up and really help make that transition much easier. And with a number of our portfolio companies across from you know, Automation Anywhere, Auth0, Asana, we've been very successful about helping them on that Japan market entry to where it can be very rapidly become one of the most important markets that they are operating in. And a lot of cases, it was not on their priority list before they engaged with us and we helped them with that. Yeah, having worked almost three years at a Japanese bank, I can understand how it would be challenging for someone to consider entering Japan, particularly an outsider. So I can definitely see the value there. So tell us a little bit about maybe some of the commonalities of the companies you invest in. Sounds like possible synergies with LPs. That is something you have in mind. But what are some of the other traits? And that's not necessarily... When we are investing, we're very much, you know, typical VC investing from a financial perspective, the company that we think is is going to be a great company and can provide the best financial return. Obviously, you know, being passionate about the product because as a, you know, if we're going to be on the board, it's something that we're going to be spending the next three to five to 10 years with. And so definitely want to be passionate about the product, the team who we're working with. And then we do look at, is there some synergy either with, you know, one or multiple LPs or, is there somewhere down the road an opportunity to enter into Japan? It doesn't have to be right away. It's certainly, you know, it could be several feet down and it doesn't even necessarily have to be there, but we prefer to see it because we view that obviously we as individual partners in a VC firm feel like we can bring individual value, but as a firm, our unique value that we bring is, can we help accelerate those companies we invest in some way in some way by leveraging that LP base. So we definitely look at that. But I think that, you know, we are typically investing at the growth phase. So it's typically series B, series C and later. And so 
one of the things that I think that we are very good at is taking a very analytical view at the company and understanding, are they starting to hit an inflection point from a growth standpoint? Are they starting to show some of the metrics that we would hope to see around customer retention, you know, expansion within existing customers that go to market motion in terms of how they're building a sales team and scaling that and bringing people on. There are a lot of metrics that you see that are very common there. And then obviously looking at things in terms of some of the key trends that we see in the market and do they fit within one of those themes that we've set up as an area that we're targeting for investment. How long does it typically take you to make a decision? It can be very fast. I've seen us make decisions in two or three days on some of the fast ones. There was one of the investments that I made late last year is a company called Uncork. It's a no-code platform. And it was literally Gary, the CEO, who I'd met before. We knew each other. We'd started building a relationship. I'd been engaging with, already engaging with a number of guys on, on his team, had helped them with some introductions. They were actually in Japan at the time with some of our partners over there, you know, meeting with some of our LPs as kind of initial customer engagements. And he gave me a call on, I think it was Saturday and said, hey, I'm expanding the round that we just closed a few months ago with Capital G and Goldman Sachs. I've got a little bit of room. Would you be interested in coming in? You know, I I need to know pretty quickly. And it was literally, he called me on Saturday. I called him back on Wednesday and said, we're in, how big of a check can I write? And I think we closed and you know sent the check a week after that so we can move very quickly the typical engagement and a lot of cases we have been meeting with companies and building a relationship potentially over you know months before a fundraising process starts and so we oftentimes have a pretty good sense of this is a company we really like a management team we like it you know they're going a direction that we think is really interesting and so then our typical cycle will be, you know, on a good company, two weeks is very typical. And that's kind of a first week of getting into a data room, doing deep dive on the data, really making sure we understanding it, building our own internal investment thesis, you know, presenting it to our partner meeting the, the following Monday, making a decision of we think this is something we want to move forward with. And then, you know, over the course of the next week, you know, setting up them coming into the next partner meeting to present and then you know, during a term sheet right after that is kind of typical cycle of what we would go through. Sounds like uh, the moral of that story is come asking for advice before you come asking for funding. You know, in a lot of cases, that is, you know, we're getting into this oftentimes, it's a 10-year relationship that you're building. And so, you know, we definitely do like to have a pre-existing relationship. So I think that anything you can do, and having been on the founder side, there is the, oh, there's, I just raised around the funding. There's a VC calling. That's the last person in the world I want to talk to right now. But oftentimes those people, if they're coming in, starting to build that relationship over time, you as a, as a founder as well, want to make sure that the person you're putting on your board is going to be someone that you have a good working relationship with. Because again, you're going to be stuck with them maybe for the next 10 years. And so being willing to have those discussions at times when neither of you necessarily have something to gain is a good time for building those relationships and figuring out as you're going to the next fundraising, actually, here are the people that I think would really add value to my board. And 
I think a lot of founders get caught up in certainly the excitement and thrill of, you know, who's offering me the term sheet with the highest valuation and writing the biggest check and some of those kinds of things. Oftentimes, that's not the best investor. Um, and oftentimes, that's not necessarily the, the round that is structuring, that's setting you up for success for the, you know, the three rounds you're going to raise after that. And so I think that the founders who are really very thoughtful about, okay, this is the way I want to structure this round because I think that it lays the foundation for the next round I'm going to raise, both in terms of, you know, putting investors on the board that are going to attract the right kind of next phase investors and giving me people that I think are going to be the people I can call if something's going wrong and have an honest conversation with them versus feeling like I'm always having to sell to them on an ongoing basis is setting up a much better relationship where you're getting value out of that. And the people that are thoughtful about assembling that set of advisors, I think are the people that are building for long-term success. That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of boards, what do you think makes a good board member? <laughs> yeah, I think obviously someone with expertise certainly helps. I think another thing that is really important is, you know, having someone that's going to be really engaged in the business on an ongoing basis. The investor that, you know, shows up at the quarterly board meeting has their own set of preconceived opinions that are coming in and they're kind of saying directing and maybe has the case of it's the same five points that they're making every single board meeting that I've heard three times and it's not adding value anymore versus the person that is taking the time to get to know the broader management team, taking time to spend with other people across the company, both because they want to be that mentor and add value, but also because they just have the intellectual curiosity around your business and are making an investment in making it succeed to where they're walking into that board meeting already understanding, okay, here's what's been going on. Here are the challenges that you have. Here are the opportunities that we have in front of us to hoard that board meeting as opposed to it just being a update on, oh, here's all the progress that I've made. You're able to walk in and say, actually, I'm going to take advantage of having these five or however many people around the table together to have a discussion, to problem solve against something that is a challenge for my business and am walking out with you know, things that each one of those board members is going to be helping me on an ongoing basis coming out of this meeting. And so having the ability to have a, a board that's engaged in that way and willing to work on behalf of the company is going to make for the most valuable board that you can have in place. And so I think that in doing that, you're looking for a diversity of experiences, a diversity of ways of thinking and points of view and so kind of assembling, you know, people like to see a diverse board and that diversity can mean a lot of different things, but trying to have a, a variety of voices at the table, I think is really, really important. Excellent. Excellent. Steve, you've been in the industry for a while and you've seen it evolve along with your career. Let's talk a little bit about some of the trends that you're seeing, particularly in SureTech. I think this is uh, really an area that you know better than almost anyone. What are some of the current trends that you're seeing right now? And what are the trends that you're excited about for the future? Yeah. And I think that some of the trends I'm seeing in sure tech specifically, but that even broader fintech are very similar. 
And I think we're going through a bit of a transition right now. So if you look at kind of the period over the last five plus years was the rise of the disruptor, if you will. And so it was companies coming in with these disruptive business models that were going after the incumbents with a digitally native mobile first user experience around a traditional product and a way that was changing how you acquired customers digitally, how what their user experience was, how you were underwriting them. And underneath that, one of the most powerful things was the technologies that they were building where it was, you know, instead of these legacy systems and people and processes, you were building something that was from its very core a cloud-based software-enabled platform to where the underlying kind of cost structure was just dramatically different. And I think that, you know, as some of those companies were scaling, seeing the power of that kind of underlying software infrastructure was almost more powerful than even, oh, the three things they were doing slightly different from a product side on the front end. And, you know, that's everything from on the payment side, a Square or a Stripe, on the lending side, a, a lending club or a firm, Chime on the banking side, and certainly an insurance, Lemonade, Hippo, Next, Metro Mile, all those sets of companies, all were coming in with a standpoint of, I'm going to build this unique customer experience that is leveraging data in a better way to do better risk selection, to do better customer acquisition, to manage those customers more cost-effectively and challenge the, the existing incumbents. We're seeing a transition to where companies are instead coming in and saying, we're going to deliver that software stack where every business can be an insurtech business or a fintech business. And you're seeing that in a number of different ways of both the incumbents themselves saying, oh, we need to adopt some of those technologies. And so, you know, five years ago, the thought of an insurance company or a bank moving some of their core operations to the cloud was just a, this is never going to happen. We can't do it from a data security, a data privacy. There were just all the reasons they can't, couldn't do that to where today, they're starting to realize we need to be able to move faster. I think COVID has accelerated that to where they all thought they started going through a digital transformation journey to where they felt like they were in pretty good shape. And there were five different kind of legacy processes that required having people on site in their offices that all of a sudden they never contemplated what has happened over the last six months and had pieces of their business just stop. And could be everything from, oh, a, a mortgage lender that still requires you to send in your bank statements to a, a call center that they could scan and ingest in some way. And oops, there's no one sitting in a call center in a mail center anymore to receive those. And so I think there's an acceleration there. I think that we're seeing an acceleration of kind of non-fintech businesses. And so that can be anything from an existing consumer brand saying, hey, I want to be able to offer financial services types of products to my existing customer base, either because I think that it broaders my cross-sell into them or helps improve 
my conversion or my customer experience with my customers in some way. And I need a way to be able to, you know, develop those products and bring them to my customers or businesses that are starting and saying, I'm actually starting a SaaS business, but I'm going to have a FinTech model embedded within that. And so we're seeing a new wave of companies coming in that are building almost it's like a set of Legos available through APIs to where if you're sitting down and saying, I need to develop this new financial services product, you can piece those things together very, very quickly in a way that was inconceivable five years ago. And so I think a lot of those API first types of companies that are these fintech enablers are going to be at the core of the next generation of innovation we see across financial services. And so that's you know, where we're excited about looking at companies. And Steve, do you follow the insure tech industry around the world? Because it seems to be different countries and different regions are at multiple stages of development. And I think there's a long runway and it's longer in some countries than others. Yeah, um, I do. And I think one of the big challenges on insurance is even beyond broader financial services in how much it varies from country to country. And that, that is one of the things that makes InsureTech very challenging to do on a global scale. It is one of the reasons that looking at some of the enabling technologies certainly gives you the ability to be global much faster. But for example, the mechanisms that I talked about in the US for how you bring a product to market of In the U.S., you've got a regime of essentially 50 different jurisdictions to where you have to go and pre-submit your pricing model to each one of those regulators, get it approved before you can start offering your product. And that's just a very different environment than you would have in the U.K., in Europe more broadly, in different countries in Asia or in Japan. And so the ability of a company that has developed a product in the U.S. to then go global is hard. And so I think that, you know, there are a lot of companies that we look at that are very interesting in different global markets. And so we look globally there. But one of the things that is very interesting for some of the like U.S.-based fintech companies is looking at how can we take some of the infrastructure that they built in some cases, and as opposed to trying to say, wow, building a brand in the US and acquiring customers is really hard. A lot of those companies don't have the stomach to say, let me go try and do that again in another country and start from scratch, as opposed to being able to say, I've built this infrastructure that allows kind of straight through real-time underwriting of a product Um, in a unique way using a a bunch of data sources that would be really hard to rebuild for somebody else. Let me look at licensing that that tech stack to an incumbent um, for them to be able to implement in another country. And that's certainly one of the things that I've been working with some of the, both our portfolio companies and companies that I know more broadly to say, you know, how can we you know, do partnerships with, you know, a company in Europe or a company in Japan or a company in Asia to take all of the things that you've built and allow you to scale internationally without necessarily having to deal with the regulatory or customer acquisition specifics of each individual market. We recently had the co-founders of Hellas Direct, the Greek yep. fintech, yep. and it's fascinating what they're building over there. It was also a yep. fun interview. 
Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talking about COVID, you've mentioned a little bit how, of course, this has accelerated uh, a lot of the digitization trends in, in short tech. How else have you seen this crisis affect the industry? Yeah, I think that there've been it's been a very interesting to process to watch over the last few months. I think certainly the incumbents there has been this big shift of we thought that we need to be able to to do a digital transformation. It's something we can work on over the next couple of years and has made them say we don't necessarily want to repeat going through what we had to go through over the next six months and how do we move a lot faster? And I think that it's opened them up to, one, it's shown them in very stark relief. Here are the five holes that we had in our internal processes that we didn't realize that we have to absolutely get fixed, as well as just kind of giving them the freedom to think about things kind of without some of the constraints that they were putting on themselves before. And so I think that we're definitely seeing incumbents saying, okay, Cloud, yes, let's make that move now, even though we've been reluctant to it. Startups and tech partnerships, we're much more open to those because we need to do in six months what we thought we had two years to do. And so I think that we've seen a lot more openness and engagement between you know, both our, our LPs as well as other companies in the industry to say, how can we partner to move faster, let's be more open, let's be more innovative, let's throw away some of the constraints that we thought we had. And so I think that's been very refreshing from that standpoint. I think that you've obviously seen a huge shift in things starting to move online. You see this across e-commerce, but I think you've seen that in a lot of financial services as well, to where certainly the acceleration of digital payments, touchless transactions, all of that has been accelerating. And so I think that it has been very interesting to watch. I think that one of the other areas that is going to be very interesting to see, certainly over the next six to nine months, is the impact on small and medium businesses. Because I think from the shutdowns, those are the companies that have been impacted the most. And I'm seeing a lot of them... You know, and we've seen it with restaurants of shifting into all of a sudden, okay, how do we do takeout? How do we do delivery? How do we have these some of these different types of models to where we keep operating? Other you know, retail businesses thinking about, you know, how do I move to a touchless model with my customers to be able to keep going? But I think that we're going to start seeing that across a lot of different segments of small business to where you know, one of the areas that we're going to be looking at is certainly vertical SaaS types of solutions targeted at small businesses to where they're coming in and saying, okay, we're building a software stack that is specifically targeted to your industry and is enabling you to go digital in ways that you hadn't thought of before. And oftentimes what we're seeing is embedded within that is a, a fintech revenue model. So it can be something like, you know, I think that, you know, at large scale, you've seen this with Shopify, you've seen this with Toast, where they were providing an operating platform to e-commerce providers, or they were to restaurants to where, you know, their lead is, hey, we're going to give you a better piece of software for being able to 
manage what tables we're putting reservations at and having the waiters go out with a, you know, the menu on their phone to where they can take orders and have it kind of automatically processed into the kitchen to have them do that. But embedded within that, the way they're making a lot of their money is it also then becomes the way that they take payment and process payment. And so there's a fintech model embedded within that. I think that we're going to see a lot more innovation on, you know, SaaS products that are targeted to specific industries. So whether it's doctors and dentist office, it is, you know, small contractors, a lot of different things to where they're coming in and saying, hey, you're needing to transform your business in a way that you hadn't thought of before to survive now. We're going to give you a platform that helps you do that transition. And oftentimes embedded within that will be the model for them taking payment, doing transactions between them and their partners, either on a B, you know, business to customer or business to business, and monetizing that within that structure in a way that is helping that business be more efficient, but is also helping the software provider monetize that without having necessarily to directly charge the small business who often doesn't have a very big wallet, but is taking advantage of increased transaction volume that is happening through that platform as a result of making those small businesses successful. And so I think that that is an area that I think COVID will accelerate. And I think will be interesting to see the new companies that are forming as people are starting to rethink the economy and the way of doing business in a post-COVID type of world. That's super interesting. And then sounds like there's a lot of work to be done. On that note, how does the road ahead look for you and then for World Innovation Lab? Yeah, I think it's very exciting, obviously. I think this is a time where certainly we can help the companies that we're working with. It's been a great bonding experience with our CEOs to really sit down with them and help them think through the challenges of the, the businesses and build that. I think one of the really interesting things that has come out of this is on the VC side, because we're now all working remote, and I think there was a propensity to so much of what we did was in-person meetings. And so, you know, as a result, 80% of the companies we're meeting were companies that were local. And today, I think one of the big changes, now everything's being done over Zoom. And so the geographic boundaries of, you know, what companies we're working with, we're losing the ability to have that in-person touch to get to know people through the funding process, which I think that is a challenge because a lot of it, again, is sitting across the table for someone and really getting to know them as you're making an investment. But it has also broken down the barriers of geography for the companies we're talking to and where we potentially would invest. I would say I have talked with more companies in Europe over the last three or four months than I did on the 18 months before that, just because it's just as easy for me to talk to a company in San Francisco as it is to talk to a company in London. And so I think that that change of how we're processing deals, if we are remote, has loosened some of the shackles on certainly geography in terms of the companies that we're going to be investing in and the way we're thinking about our business to where I would certainly expect to be having a much broader geographic footprint of the companies that we're investing in over the next 12 to 18 months than over the last couple of years that we've been investing. Fascinating. I'd love to see a a wider industry study on that note in in the coming months or years. I think it'll be very interesting. 
Well, Steve, thank you for joining us again. Before we go, one last question that we ask all of our guests is, how do you spend some of that time outside of work, outside of World Innovation Lab? Maybe talk about some of your hobbies. Most of my life, I've been kind of a runner. I dabbled in in triathlons over the years. And so I think that that is one of the things that has continued to be kind of a lifelong passion. And a lot of that is, I find that as the outlet where, you know, it gives me a chance to get away for an hour or 90 minutes and kind of just be in my own head with nothing else going on and be able to think about things. And oftentimes, you know, certainly when I was an entrepreneur, that's where I solved a lot of the big problems was just going out and, you know, it's an hour of just running through the woods and thinking about something has been a really kind of nice foil. I think certainly over the years, I've gotten slower. (laughs) And so I'm certainly not competing like I used to when I was younger. But um, one of the fun things is, you know, most of my family also does the same thing. So my wife, one of the ways that we met was running. And I think that throughout my life, running has been a humbling experience because I think I am currently the slowest person in my family. So even when I was younger, my, my wife was always a little bit, was always a little bit faster than me. And so it certainly kept my ego in check. And as my kids have gotten older, they have all at different times become faster than me. And I think one of the things I remember is um, one time there's a little fun run here in town. And I think my middle son was seven at the time. And I told my wife, oh, I'll just run with him. And she gave me a sideways look and said, are you sure? And I think we went through the first mile at about a 6.45 pace. And he was kind of looking at me at me and like, dad, are we going to go faster anytime soon? At that point, I said, you go ahead. And that was kind of the point at which I said, you know, I think my days of being competitive are gone and I'm never going to catch up at this point. And so it's both a thing that I think I've enjoyed, but also it's been something that always is, is humbling and keeps the ego in check of, uh, you know, everyone's a little bit faster than I am and that's okay. And, but it's also been something that is fun as a lifestyle. And, you know, I think over the years I've gotten more engaged with my kids doing it and being able to go out and lucky enough to kind of live in the same place that I grew up. And so watching, you know, first my daughter, who's my oldest and my middle son run on some of the same courses that I ran in, in high school and have some of those same experiences. It's been a, a real nice continuity thing of, uh, kind of seeing, passing down a set of values and experiences through the generations that has been kind of very fun. That's fascinating. And a nice, nice reminder that there's always someone faster than we are. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Steve, thank you again for joining us. Um, I've certainly learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners will love this episode. And then again, having a a Warts and Alum is an even not extra special treat. So, you know, we're glad you joined and then we definitely want to see you around campus once we're all back there. That would be great. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.